Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's not last year, but is the economy rebounding for all? Where there are parts of the economy that are doing quite well and are full swing, things like the Amazons and the Home Depots, but then you have a lot of other parts of the economy uh, that are struggling. The restaurants, hotels, small businesses, uh, people living in minority, lower income and immigrant communities, all those places are struggling. Now that's Atlanta Federal Reserve President and CEO Rafael Bostic. And so now we ask, but what's the economic outlook for Georgia this summer? Well, a conversation with Emory University professor and economist Tom Smith. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, the Southern Poverty Law Center is suing the Georgia Department of Labor again. The SPLC announced the suit in a press release. Filed in Fulton County, the organization is asking a judge to require Commissioner Mark Butler to release records related to the state's backlog and and unemployment claims throughout this pandemic. Now, the SPLC also alleges the Department of Labor has, quote, failed to comply with the state's Open Records Act. And recently, Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, right here on his program, defended his department's handling of the state's unemployment claims. You know, you hear a lot of these accusations are not actually based upon any fact or any kind of actual you know, numbers to back it up. But when you look at all the states uh, in America, and this is come from this came from an actual U.S. DOL publication uh, back in February, we were 22nd. Uh, in the nation as far as timeliness of paying claims in that 14 to 21 days. And there is no state in front of us that did as many claims and is as large as we are. And that was Commissioner Butler just last week on the program. Meanwhile, Closer Look did reach out to the Department of Labor regarding this latest lawsuit. And a representative for the GDOL said they had not they did not have a statement at this time. So we'll keep you posted. In other news, lawmakers at the Georgia Capitol today announced a series of bills in response to last week's shootings in the metro area and also out in Cherokee County. Now, Asian-American and specific Islander state lawmakers are proposing bills in both chambers. These bills will require additional training for police officers using methods that are, quote, culturally and language accessible. Now, other bills would require the state's 911 system to establish a language translation program and also create a five-day waiting period to purchase a firearm. In other news, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right here in Atlanta reports nearly one in four Americans have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Still, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says she is concerned about a new surge in the pandemic. Until then, we must do everything we can to stop the spread of COVID-19 and the proliferation of variants while we get more people vaccinated. 
Now, that's Dr. Walensky on, Dr. Walensky on a press call yesterday. She also says, look, it's critical that states keep public health measures in place and that people keep taking steps like masking and social distancing. And all this comes as Georgia's average rolling average of newly confirmed COVID-19 cases is actually down from a mid-January peak. But reports of new cases have recently stayed the same. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Just yesterday, it was about 542 new cases were reported. And this brings Georgia's total number since last March. Here you go. 843,675 confirmed coronavirus cases here in the state. 16,145 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the total number of hospitalizations is now 57,961. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from... The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A year ago, it appeared, well, actually no one really knew, but there was great speculation as to where the global economy was headed. And after a year, we, well, we kind of know. But officially become the, but before she became the nation's current Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen summed up the impact of the pandemic. The pandemic and economic fallout that together have caused so much damage for so many and have had a disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable among us. Lost lives, lost jobs, small businesses struggling to stay alive or closed for good. So many people struggling to put food on the table and pay bills and rent. It's an American tragedy. And it's essential that we move with urgency. Inaction will produce a self-reinforcing downturn, causing yet more devastation. Well, that was then. But now, with Biden's administration's American Rescue Plan and vaccines available, here's the question. Will the nation's economy be booming this summer? And if so, how will all of this play into Georgia's summer outlook? We feel there's only one man that can, well, there are some women that can answer this too, but as far as what we need today, we fear there, <laughs> figure there's one guy that can answer this. Of course, you know him. He's from Emory University. He's a professor of finance and everything else. Tom Smith, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Really, really great being back on your show. I appreciate you inviting me over. Let's uh, let's go back a little bit because I remember in last April in one of our many conversations regarding all of this and doing what you do best. Here was your response to a question I asked you oh, about. No. <laughs> Are you ready? This is your life. No, of course, of course. <laughs> Take a listen. All right. It's not going to get better until we have a better understanding uh, with respect to how we can bend the curve, how we can get the virus under control because the economy runs because you and I and your listeners are going out and buying goods and services that we are visiting local enterprises, spending our money, and that consumption 
turns it into their income, which then turns into their consumption, which turns into somebody else's income. I mean, there's a reason why we talk about the economy as being circular, is that it literally is your consumption becomes my income, my income becomes somebody else's income. And if we can't consume, then we can't make income. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But looking back now, not quite a year since that got conversation, but uh, has it been catastrophic? Has it been terrible? What's your assessment? Talk about the economy now overall. Uh, right. So um, and thank you for playing that little clip. Uh, I think that I was on the money, um, if I may be so bold as to congratulate myself. We, I mean, our, our economy really is driven by our ability to take control of the virus. And we're seeing that once we have done this, our economy is now coming back into shape. I, I'm much more confident than I was a year ago because we, we had no idea about how we were going to do a rollout of a vaccine, when we were going to have a rollout of a vaccine. And now it's, we're having a much more clear path forward. Uh, to get to your original question, I apologize for a little bit of a tangent there. The economy has been really terrible for some people. Mm -hmm. It has been kind of bad for other people. It's been, it's, I mean, there's a reason why people are calling this a K-shaped recovery because some people who have done um, who were doing really well, continued to do really well. And then other people who were caught in the, uh, the, the crosshair of the gun, if you will, just, they lost everything. They lost their job. They lost their apartment. They lost family mm -hmm. because of COVID. And so it's, I think it's really difficult to say everything is better. Everything is worse because there's really different groups of people who've experienced this last economic recession differently. And we'll talk about some of those demographics in just a moment, but looking at a state like Georgia, where we know consumer spending was down, but apparently it wasn't that bad for a state like Georgia. Matter of fact, if you look at Georgia's gross sales and use tax collections, I mean, they did pretty good in February, $1.09 for an increase of $126 million, uh, or so since February 2020. For a state like Georgia, that is not bad. Just, a, you know, an increase of $126.1 million, you would say, okay, well, Georgia fared okay. Do you want to give credit to Governor Brian Kemp for keeping the state open? Um, I think that Georgia's mix of the kind of businesses that are here um, gave it a, some, a fairly a fair amount of insulation from the turmoil that other states experienced. Mm -hmm. So even if you're looking at, let's say, our unemployment rate, the unemployment rate in Georgia um, is about the lowest of our peer cities, if you include cities like uh, Memphis and Houston and New Orleans. You know, New Orleans is, you know, upwards of 9 10%, mm -hmm. and we're, you know, hovering below 5%. I mean, that's a huge difference, and it has a lot to do with what drives our city. In New Orleans, a whole lot more tourism, hospitality. Um, in Atlanta, we've got a much larger mix of industries. And so it's it, clearly this recession is hitting different industries in different ways. Well, and if you look back to last April, when this nation experienced its highest unemployment rate since the, the 30s or 40s or whatever that was, it was 14.8 percent. That was last April. It was a yeah, it was high. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely awful. At the same time, New Orleans was experiencing unemployment rates of nearly 18 percent, mm -hmm. right? You know, four 
uh, 400 basis points bigger than that, right? And we saw very, very high unemployment rates, almost 15% in Houston, mm-hmm. Jackson, Mississippi, Chattanooga as well. And Detroit, um, and so I believe, it, and even, it's yeah. actually, oh, goodness, right? And But so I do want to say that I was much more skeptical about the the rollout that the governor had last April, right? We did talk about this on the mm-hmm. air then. And I was saying, goodness, you know, you, barbershops are opening up, you, you know, you've got all these different bowling alleys are opening up, right? I mean, is this going to create additional havoc? And it, it I don't think it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know in entirety how this whole thing is going to impact different groups of people, because I mentioned different groups have experienced this recession in different ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to play a game of yes and no with you based on some actual headlines. We haven't done this before. You, you excited? Oh, no, I, 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 I am. Do I get a prize? <laughs> yeah, you get to come back. <laughs> oh, OK. All right. OK. OK. All right. All right. So this is a game of yes and no based on these actual headlines. Here we go. Yes and no. First actual one. headlines. OK. All the right. COVID-19 vaccines are likely to boost the economy and jobs in 2021. Yes. Why? Absolutely. You want me to comment after I say yes? Okay. Yes, so, it's part of the game, uh, so Professor. The COVID vaccines. Yeah. Oh, okay. Part of the game. All right. So yeah, the COVID vaccines are making people more confident that they can go out and interact in the economy, and that's the economy is seventy percent of our economy is driven by consumer spending, mm-hmm. and so if consumers are more confident, they will go out. Just like in the past, like let's say after the nine eleven. Um, terrorist strikes, we had a recession. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was caused by people becoming introverts, saying, I'm not, I don't want to go out. I don't mm-hmm. want to fly. I don't want to spend any money. And that recession was um, motivated by the lack of people's interest in engaging with the market. And so if we want to encourage people to go back out, get them vaccinated so they feel more safe, continue to double mask up, social distance, be responsible, but go out and, you know, start spending your money. That's going to get the economy churning. So, yes, yes on that one. Well, let's stick with the consumer theme. January's retail sales smashing expectations amid better news on the pandemic front. 2021 could be the year of the consumer. Yeah, I'm going to say a maybe on this. There is a there's an idea that there's a lot of latent demand out there. So the latent demand is sort of a pent up demand for goods and services that people haven't been able to buy the last year. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you say, OK, I've been sitting around. I've been sitting at home. You know, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading or, you know, watching Netflix or whatever it is. You know what I really want to do? I really need to go buy a new moped or oh, I've just been thinking about buying a new car. I just mm-hmm. uh, don't feel comfortable going out and doing that so that there's this the pent up demand and it's possible that you could just see you know the dam breaks open and everybody goes out and spends the reason i'm saying maybe however is that it's possible that we have become accustomed to a different type of consumption Mm -hmm. and then we're going to go forward with our lives maybe for the next year or two years under those new circumstances if i if i can give you an example sure I haven't done as much dry cleaning the last year because I haven't been in front of students, right? So I'm wearing polo shirts or what have you. Well, I, you know, the truth is that when I go back to campus in the fall, 
then I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm going to continue wearing polo shirts. Maybe I'm going to wear more sweaters. I've been I've been becoming really comfortable with sweaters. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Like, if I don't have to wear the college shirts and get them dry cleaned, then you know I'll just I'll just go about my life wearing polo shirts and sweaters for a while, because I've changed my consumption habits. And it's possible that this the COVID has caused us to change some of our consumption habits. So uh, maybe on a bust out year, I wouldn't say across the board. I would say maybe in some areas, but maybe not across the board. Okay. Next one. The economic takeoff depends on air travel. Ooh, in a city like Atlanta, I would say that's a, I'm going to say 90% yes on that. Um, You know, I mean, we've got Delta airlines and, great company in mm-hmm. our beautiful city here and there were a lot of people who were laid off people who took early retirement and we're not we're not talking just like baggage handlers we're talking pilots mm-hmm. and you know other types of flight personnel um those people getting their jobs back right makes a difference for you know these peach tree city and other places you know south of the city but also people's ability to move around the country and experience our economy the way that they want to is dependent on reliable, safe air travel. And so if people feel comfortable getting in the air, sitting next to someone they don't know, mm-hmm. right, then that makes it more possible for them to engage in the kind of activity they want to engage in. Go to Vegas, you know, go to California, fly up to New York, or see a show. You need to feel comfortable in the airport. You need to feel comfortable on the airline. So I would say, yeah, people need to be confident and they need to be comfortable. All right. And the final one, the housing market is bionic, and that is a good indicator for 2021 as well. Bionic. That's a great word. I just, I'll just give it a, let me give it a thumbs up just because of the word bionic. Okay. <laughs> so here's what's so interesting about the housing market is that people have realized and maybe their jobs are changing and saying, you know what, you don't have to go to the office. You don't have to. You can live wherever you want and still go to work. Mm-hmm. People are saying, OK, well, I, I mean, I want to live. I want to live over here. I want to live up in Waleska. I want to live over in LJ or something. Or you know, maybe I don't have to live uh, downtown in order to get to my job, which means that they're they're going out and buying the house they want. I think it's um, squeezing some people out of house buying that would have otherwise. The real estate industry is really tricky and can be really finicky. Mm-hmm. Usually the way that the real estate market goes is the way the economy goes. So if you're seeing a bust in the real estate market, you're going to see a bust in the economy. But it so stayed estate- steady this last year, Professor. It did, but I, th- I think it stayed steady because of different reasons. It mm-hmm. stayed steady. Well, it's not, it wasn't even steady. So there was a drop in inventory, but the time on the market went way down. Mm-hmm. So houses that did go on the market vanished in a minute and prices went way up. Mm-hmm. I think that revealed a change in the attitude about what your house provided you. So now instead of your house just being a place where you cook and sleep, now it's the place where you cook and sleep, entertain and work. Well, that's a ch- that's a change in what it is that your house provides for you, which I think changed the market dramatically for this last year. So there's always caveats. And so, I, I mean, I know you're at the studio, but I, I'm pretty sure you weren't at the studio for the entire lockdown. Thank you. Were no, probably working. Guess again, buddy. 
Were you? Oh my goodness! Well, yeah. good for you. Well, it was just me you. and a couple of wayward squirrels <laughs> and a producer. But wayward squirrels running around yeah, the building. So, a, <laughs> I'm but just you're kidding. you're you're one of a very few number mm-hmm. of people who actually continue to then go to work during this time. Now, my right? colleagues worked. I don't want people to think only Rose and Grace oh. and Kevin was working this last year. My my PBA colleagues were working too, but. You know, we came yeah. into the studio. That's right. That's right. But it, but it's. I mean, so I'm 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 sorry to say you're not the only radio personnel that I listen to, Rose. And so I listen yeah. to other radio jocks in town, and some of them were doing broadcasts from their house, like home. Well, that's because they are not as cool as I am, and, and not as dedicated, <laughs> of course. Clearly, clearly, no. But I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people started working out of their house, sure. and they said, okay. You know what? I'm gonna have to change my whole. If this is what I'm gonna do for the next year, mm-hmm. right, I'm gonna just I'm gonna have to get a new 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 house. And I think that that change in the dynamic um, boosted the real estate market in some very very specific. All of a way. sudden, that extra need for an extra bedroom for, to turn into the office or for the kids or for virtual learning was so important. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Tom Smith. He's a professor of finance and economist from Emory University. I want to go back to our conversation. We were talking about different demographics and how people from different groups are faring. Now, my question to you is that considering that more than 3 million women alone left the workforce due to COVID-19, and right now I think it's just over a little over 9 million. So you're saying the economy will be strong for some and not others. And if that's that, what do you call it, the K-shaped recovery? That's right. That's right. And I'm 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 happy to I can send you some um, I'm going to send you some graphs and some you know information if you'd like to post it or you know just just share it around. Uh, the truth is that we we saw this huge spike in unemployment and we're continuing to see different unemployment rates for different groups. Sure. So for example, so white males and white females in general, according to according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're Unemployment rate is around five percent, but for um, for Hispanic females, it's more like seven and a half percent. For Black males, it's ten percent. For Black females, it's under a little bit under ten percent. Mm-hmm. So you have almost a, a five percent gap. So so twice a twice as large unemployment rate for let's say Black males as compared to white males, or for Black females compared to white females. And that also goes into what's called the labor force participation rate, which you just mentioned. Hmm. So the participation rate is how many of these people or the, the ratio of the people who are actually engaging in the labor market. And we saw you know, a very, very large decrease in labor force participation for black males and for black females. Mm-hmm. And the black female labor force participation rate is still down about 12%. Mm-hmm. relative to where it was before and it hasn't come back up yeah. now it's it's not just for for black females actually white females also have saw a dramatic decrease last february and march and their numbers have not increased and i think a lot of that has to do with um, the role that that women play in household production well we've been so, talking about that a lot yeah. on this program absolutely let's get to the summer before i let you go what are your expectations for the economy this summer with Georgia, you know, I'm I've always been bullish about Atlanta. I love the city, and I think that its diversity is one of its its core strengths. I think that if 
if people are safe, if they continue to roll out the vaccine like they are, then I think that this summer people can go out. Maybe they'll open up uh, the ballpark. People can go to Braves games. Maybe they can start, let's say, having some kind of events in in Centennial Park. I, I would like to think that the economy can get moving in a stronger direction by the middle of the summer and then definitely by the fall. So I have very, very strong feelings about this this economy really picking up and looking a lot like it did by, let's say, August. But some sectors, I, I imagine, will probably still, if you want to use the word, suffer. Maybe, yeah. maybe not theme parks, cruise lines. I mean, will, <laughs> yeah. will folks send their kids to summer camp? I mean, summer camps, I understand, will be back online, particularly the sleepaway camps, and we all love them. I went to them. But there could be some sectors that will still continue to they won't see those traditional summer numbers i I, you know if folks want to go to six flags that's great and disney do you expect to see that same consumer spending habit toward those those industries super smart point rose i think that some of those sectors are not going to come back the way that we anticipate that they would you know disney is opening back up but disney california is open only open to california I don't know what Six Flags rollout plan is, but I can imagine they're going to have some limits on occupancy. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to buy tickets to the Braves game, and it, I thought it was successful, and then I got my alert from StubHub that said, nope, actually those tickets aren't available. We don't even know how many people are going to be in the park. And so they, you know, they canceled my order, so I can't go see you know, what I think is going to be a championship team this year. And I'm a Cubs fan, and I love that team. So it's I, I, those kind of things are what I look forward for in the summer. I want to take my kids to the game. Mm-hmm. I want to go see the Braves play. I want to take them to Centennial Park. I want to go to the music festivals and the arts festivals. I just don't see them coming back in a real robust way until we've got a larger portion of our population that's vaccinated. And finally, we were talking about consumer spending earlier. Obviously, part of that is consumer habits. But if we look at what's just been taking place down in Florida with this past spring break, does that give you pause for the summer? Because if we see those coronavirus numbers increase, then we're back to where we were. Yeah, that's it's a it. We have to be uh, playing this thing really safe and not always be considering well what's going to happen the next month and the next two months. We really have to be considering you know what's going to be the state of our economy and the state of our health for the next year or two years. Notice how quickly you know the the mayor of these cities declared you know an emergency. You know the police out there saying you got to you got to spread out like you got can't have this many people there. Mm-hmm. I, no doubt there's going to be a super spreader event. No doubt that Miami is going to suffer as a result of this, you know, a short weekend and a bunch of money spending, you know, a bunch of people spending money on beer and hotel rooms might turn into a health crisis that's going to cost the city, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in the long run. We just can't afford to engage in that kind of, let's say, uh, myopic behavior. And so we have to be much more forward looking and take things little steps, little steps. But it's painful. People want to get out. People want to start living their lives. And finally, when I asked you about the airlines and the imp- the influence of consumer spending, if folks don't want to fly, gas prices will probably be an influence as well. I mean, how do you see that? Yeah, I'm actually seeing a, there's been a, a little bit of uptick in, in gas prices, but gas prices had been so low. I remember a, a year ago, I mean, gas prices were, were falling 
very, very low. I think people are starting to drive a little bit more. I'm thinking about some road trips. Typically, you'd see gas prices shoot up around Fourth of July weekend. Um, other long weekends where people are doing their, you know, their road trip to go see, you know, Grandma or Aunt Millie or whoever it happens to be. I think that there's going to be more people doing that this year than there were last year, but not as many as we would see for a typical mm. summer getaway. And I just want to be clear. Did you say the Cubs were a championship team or the Braves? Uh, no, I said I said I think that the Braves are going to be a championship okay, I just team to be this clear year. Because and I said I said I am a Cubs fan, but I still love. <laughs> man, that's a great team. That I I'm telling you, Rose, right now, we're I think they're headed for I think they're headed for a World Series. I think they're at least headed for a National League championship. When when it happens, you can invite me back on and play this clip and say, <laughs> Tom, remember before the season when you predicted this? Okay, you're gonna you're gonna make me that promise, Rose. Only if they beat the Cardinals. Professor of Finance <laughs> from Emory University and also an economist, Tom Smith. As always, good conversation. Thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Call it the aftermath of the November 2020 elections. There have been dozens, I mean dozens, of proposed changes to Georgia's election laws. And unless you're keeping score at home, following all the bills and the changes, it can be confusing. Now, those states, those state lawmakers in favor and opposed to a majority of the bills, well, it's been drawn along party lines. And our next segment will focus on one in particular. It's 94 pages long. It's Senate Bill 202. And it just made its way out of committee on Monday and now awaits final votes in the state legislature. Joining me now for discussion on Senate Bill 202 and maybe some other issues from Emory University. It's been Emory Day. Professor Carol Anderson, the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies. Also an author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Professor Anderson, it's been some years. Thanks for taking time. Good to speak with you again. Oh, it's great speaking with you. Let's begin with an overview, because at last check, and we've been keeping in touch with the Brennan Center for Justice, which has been tracking so many of these bills, not only here in Georgia and nationwide, but last time we spoke to them, and it was about 43 states, nearly 250 measures and county being proposed, and most of these are considered restrictive voting bills. What do you make of this? Um, This is the response to a massive voter turnout in the 2020 election. And this is the response of of the Republicans, frankly, uh, because these are Republican-driven measures um, that they cannot respond to a a growing, vast, diverse electorate with their policies. And so their response has not been to reform, but the response has been to shut down those pieces of the electorate that they believe will not vote for them. So that's what this voter suppression is about. And this is not new because a little research reveals, and I I went back and I looked this up, back in 2012, five of the 10 states that had the highest black turnout in 2008 had passed what was considered restrictive voting laws. And then seven of the 12 states that had experienced the biggest growth in the Latino population in the last decade passed what they were called 
restrictive voting laws. So this has been a pattern after a particular election. Yes. And, and in fact, it goes back even further than that. And, you know, I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. So uh, we see this back in the rise of Jim Crow uh, with the Mississippi Plan of 1890. There you had a large black population voting with and working with poor whites to transform Mississippi so that it could um, be more responsive to the needs of poor folk. And the response of the, the political leadership was to yell voter fraud and say, we've got to clean up our ballot box. We've got to clean up our elections. We've got to have election integrity. And they implemented a massive disfranchising bill. Um, They rewrote their constitution to craft what's called the Mississippi plan. Mm -hmm. And they made it sound legitimate. Um, They said, you know, um, they had measures in there like the poll tax and the literacy test that preyed on the 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 legacies of slavery because they couldn't say we don't want black people to vote because mm-hmm. the 15th amendment says the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race color or previous condition of servitude and so they use the synonyms or the the, the, the legacies of slavery um, as the means to access the ballot box to shut down black voting power um, In 1890, there were 190,000 African-Americans registered to vote in Mississippi. Two years after the Mississippi plan, there were 8,600. That's that's how this works. Black people vote. The response is, how do we shut this down? And and we should note, and you are a historian, so please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'd rather be corrected now. What I remember about that Mississippi plan, and this was a different Democratic Party was mostly white Southern Democrats. So this was a different era of the political parties, which, you know, I think one could safely argue have changed in terms of ideology. Correct. Because I don't want someone to look that up and then they'll say, well, okay, so just see, I know my little little bit of history, not much, but. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. These were the Democrats. Remember that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. And so the South was just ticked eight ways to Sunday mad at these Republicans for ending slavery. And so the South was the solid Democratic South. Um, It was a regime based on anti-Blackness, anti-civil rights, um, anti-equality. That was the Democratic Party in the South. I have not heard eight ways to Sunday mad in a long time. You must be related. Because going back to that pattern again, and one of the patterns has been an explanation for these measures, citing that voter fraud. And even going back to when uh, Reince Priebus was the chairman of the Republican National Committee back then saying that these were based on, and I'm going to quote him here, common sense proposal that seeks to further preserve the sanctity of our elections by ensuring that only eligible voters vote in American elections, close quote. And if you look at, which we'll get into now, Senate Bill 202, that's at the beginning of this 94-page measure that all of this is to ensure and prevent, one, to ensure voter confidence, and two, to prevent voter fraud. You're shaking your head. I'll let you take it from here. Yes, and and that lie of voter fraud is really designed to implement voter suppression policies by making Americans believe that our election system is under attack, that our votes are being stolen. 
Um, this is what we saw um, in, the, in, in the language of voter fraud. What it does is it links uh, cities with theft. So this is why you had, uh, we can't, if we don't count the votes in Detroit, then we know that Trump won. If we don't count the votes in Philadelphia, if we don't count the votes in Atlanta, if we don't count the votes in Milwaukee. And the thing about voter fraud, Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, did a study and he found that from 2000 to 2014, there were one billion votes cast in the United States. Of those one billion, only, there were only 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud. 31 in 15 years out of 1 billion votes. When Texas implemented its racist voter ID law, it yelled voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. But when it had to go before a judge and swear under oath, Greg Abbott, who was the secretary of state then, who is mm -hmm. now the governor, when, she, when he, she, he said voter fraud and the judge said how many, it turned out to be two cases out of 20 million votes in 10 years. Now you think about what happened here in Georgia in 2020. We had three recounts, three recounts, one by hand. They did not find massive rampant voter fraud. This language about election integrity and to restore the confidence, they are the ones who systematically went after destroying that confidence. It's like a quack doctor yelling that there's something wrong with you, something wrong with you. I got to do this really expensive, dangerous surgery and there's nothing wrong with you. That's what we have right here in SB 202. We've got a quack doctor pointing to something that's not happening, but saying we've got to have surgery in order to fix what isn't broken. If you just join us, I'm joined by from Emory University, Professor Carol Anderson. She's the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies and also the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. A lot has happened with Senate Bill 202. As mentioned, it is 94 pages long. I imagine you have gone through all of these. Uh, to even ask you what stands out to you, I feel like is sort of a silly question, but we do want to go over some of these measures here. One being, uh, remove the Secretary of State as a voting member of the state election board. Right, and so what, the, what, the, what SB 202 does is it identifies two things. It identifies the ways that people voted, the access to the ballot box that people had, um, and particularly um, via absentee ballots and via drop boxes. And it, and it sets an early voting and it sets out to curtail that access. Because remember, Georgia has already shut down over 200 polling places, in-person polling places, the vast majority of them in minority and poor communities. So if you can shut down access to the ballot box, you're, you're, you're a long way down the road in terms of disfranchisement. The second thing that this bill does is that it looks at the ways that that massive voter turnout was not overturned mm -hmm. by who were the, the, what were the levers in the state that refused to bend down to Trump when he said, I need 11,590 more votes. I need you to find those votes. So in looking at those levers, that's what this bill does. It seeks to overcome 
the methods that people access the ballot box legitimately, and it seeks to overcome the, the, the barriers to overriding the will of the voters. Let me ask you this. Someone says, well, let's talk about this requirement of a photo ID, photocopy of ID or Georgia's license for a vote by mail. Someone says, what's the harm in that? You take a photo, you take a snapshot of your your ID, your driver's license, and you make sure it's somehow attached to your to your your vote by mail uh, ballot. What's the I'm just asking this question. What's wrong with that? Multiple things. One is that it presupposes a level of economic viability to be able to copy your driver's license. So how many people have printers at home to copy the driver's license? That becomes problematic. Two is that it it presupposes as well that voter IDs are ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, that there aren't inherent inequalities in voter IDs. Um, we know, for instance, that you know there's an organization that has done incredible work in trying to get people their IDs so that they can vote, um, because it's not simple. Um, if you were bo- if you weren't born in a hospital, you don't have a driver's license. It doesn't mean that you're not uh, a human being. It doesn't mean that you're not an American citizen. It doesn't mean that you're not a Georgian. Mm-hmm. It means that you weren't born in a hospital and you don't have a birth certificate, but you need that birth certificate to get a driver's license. And so all that it takes in order to get the birth certificate cost money. And so we're looking at a sense of a poll tax here. And then what is also wrong with this is that this thing is set up for massive identity theft. I mean, why would you create these incredible uh, opportunities for for fraud in a bill that you say is about election security? Let's talk about early voting, Um, because the bill would expand. I understand early voting, you know, requiring maybe two Saturdays during that whole early voting period, but also understanding that that doesn't work in every county. Um, your take on that. Yes. And so this is, um, this is their, the, the cover. It's like a race neutral cover uh, saying we're being equitable here. Everybody's going to have these, these opportunities for two Saturdays. There are counties that have just uh, several thousand people. Then there are counties that have hundreds of thousands of people, but you're giving them the same amount of days to be able to funnel in um, several thousand and funnel in hundreds of thousands. That's not equitable. And so it is removing the ability to meet the needs of American citizens' right to vote. It is removing that from um, the, the election process. We haven't even begun. There's so there's so so much in here. I want you, though, Professor Anderson, through your lens, to look at even if this let's say this is passed, mm-hmm. um, the legal the constitutional legal challenges to this measure or, or to so many of you you see this being left up maybe to the courts if it if it indeed does get to that stage. Um, if it passes, I expect immediate legal challenges. Um, it is really clear that this bill 
is based on the big lie, the big lie that led to the Capitol insurrection, um, the big lie about the stealing of the vote, the big lie about massive rampant voter fraud, um, the big lie about the lack of election integrity. Um, so this bill is based on a false premise to begin with. Um, I see that the ways that um, in the initial one, um, in the SB, oh, I'm, I'm HB 351, I believe mm -hmm. it was, where they had um, going after souls to the polls, mm -hmm. um, that cutting down that Sunday when black churches traditionally, um, after church, have their, their congregants mm -hmm. get on a bus and go to the polls to vote. In the 2020 election, African-Americans in Georgia made up 30% of the electorate. They made up 37% of those who voted on that Sunday. And so that was a targeted hit. When they went after souls to the polls in North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit said, this is as close to a smoking gun as we're ever going to see. And we've got smoking guns all over SB 202. Again, the thing, the, the, the thing about like drop boxes. Mm -hmm. Limiting those, yes. Yeah, limiting those. Um, we know that we have a post office that is being gutted where I sent a Christmas card like the first week in December and it got there like right before New Year's from Atlanta to Atlanta. So this is the post office. Um, when what the drop boxes were designed to do was to provide an outlet, an alternative to delivering your absentee ballots to in this bill where you have the, the drop boxes being in buildings that are only open for so many hours a day. What that does to people who work in alternate shifts, um, it limits the access to the drop box and it forces them to go to a postal service mm -hmm. that is being dismantled. Professor, let me get your thoughts on this, because we have heard from some, you know, Fortune 500, some Atlanta-based corporations who've come out in opposition, although the language that they use, one could argue, is, one could argue has been sort of vague and some very, very, you know, defined. Might that, you think, have an influence, though, on some of the state lawmakers and, and their vote? I think it will. I think having um, the power of corporate America making really clear that disfranchisement is bad for business. Voter suppression is bad for business because what they are doing in this is that they are also targeting the employees of these companies mm -hmm. um, and saying that we are going to systematically make it harder for you to vote. Uh, that is bad for business. And, 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 the, and what we also know is that there is a history. And I think that this is, is, is a poc uh, good for, for Georgia. There is a history, like in the civil rights movement, of really invoking the power of corporations to weigh down and lay in on these, these, these Jim Crow regimes saying, uh-uh, we're not, we can't do business in this kind of environment. We, we can't operate with this kind of turmoil. Um, and, and that made a difference. Back in 2013, when the nation's, our nation's high court invalidated a key part of the Voting Rights Act, 
And now the Supreme Court again is asked to look at another uh, portion of this. What concerns do you have? I read a, an article where I think the headline was that the Supreme Court might kill the voting rights quietly, something like that. What, what do you make of that? And given the makeup of the high court. Um, be afraid. Be very afraid. Um, what they're going after is Section 2 mm-hmm. of the Voting Rights Act. Um, they've already, in the Shelby County Beholder decision in 2013, mm-hmm. they gutted Section 4, which provided the... Was it 4 the, or 5? Was it 4? Well, section 4 governed the standards okay. for, for preclearances. Once they gutted that, it ma- basically made Section 5 um, irrelevant. And so now they're going after Section 2, mm-hmm. which is what the litigants have been using, um, saying that you cannot racially discriminate in your voting practices, in your voting laws. And that's what litigants like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund have been using um, to go after these states mm-hmm. by dismantling Section 2. It doesn't give litigants um, a legal leg to stand on um, the way that they could with Section 2. And understand the Section 2 um, was difficult because it required multiple litigation. Mm-hmm. It sent us back, basically back to the 1950s with the Civil Rights Act of 1957, where you had litigation after litigation after litigation, and it wasn't working mm-hmm. um, because these states would just tweak the law and, and then keep discriminating. And this is why you had to have a Voting Rights Act of 1965 that had the pre-clearance provision in it mm-hmm. um, that said before you implement sure, a racistly sure. discriminatory law, um, it has to be okayed first by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the um, the, um, the the federal courts mm-hmm. in D.C. And of course, the argument on the other side was that, well, states like Georgia and some of these other southern states, they're not like what they used to be. That was sort of the argument. Just putting it out there. Yes, it sure was. Uh, That's what John Roberts said. Racism is not the force in America that it used to be. These states have moved on. Um, And and I looked at that and I said, how do you say that when in the reauthorization in 2006 that you had... um, 700 changes mm-hmm. that have been blocked by the U.S. Department of Justice. All right. From Emory University, Professor Carol Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation as always. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.